Good morning. Well, it's a blessing uh, this morning. I'm super excited. Um, as we go through the Word this morning, uh, we are going to be in Acts chapter 18. So if you have a Bible, you could turn to Acts uh, chapter 18. And, and um, it's a, a strong team. We're, we're going to look at what that is. Uh, it's funny because the Giants are playing in the World Series, I hear. I mean, I, baseball season I heard was over, you know, for me as a Dodger fan. But um, it's funny because a lot of my best friends are Giants fans. And, and uh, one friend, uh, Justin, who pastors the church in, in Gilroy, I tell him, you know what, I love you. I don't condone your, your life choices, but, you know, I love you still. And uh, <laughs> so, But anyhow, uh, I think it's uh, appropriate today we look at building a, a strong team and uh, what that looks like. But um, before we get into our study in the book of Acts, a couple of weeks ago we were at uh, Serve the Bay, which was 14 locations in Santa Cruz County, which uh, different churches doing different projects because we want to show the community that we're one church in many locations, and we really believe that. Uh, there are a lot of churches that uh, Jesus Christ is Lord, that hold fast to his word, and so uh, what we did is uh, we went to uh, the wharf and we were painting uh, the dumpster enclosures, so super romantic, uh, like, you know, glamorized uh, thing, but we were just painting those dumpsters, but uh, one thing that was really neat is that Josh had an opportunity to witness to the guys that work there. Uh, so these are the, the city guys that are working on the wharf and had an opportunity to talk to them. And then Paul Robinson probably stayed an hour and a half afterwards touching things up and then talking to these guys more about the Lord. And one of the things that was, was really great is they just felt like, wow, you guys have a, a great attitude and you're, you, you, know, you got a lot accomplished. And they were kind of blown away by that. And, and uh, this morning, as we get into our, our study I think uh, it's important because last week we looked at Acts chapter 17. And in Acts 17, Paul goes into Athens and he's at Mars Hill and uh, he is reaching out to the community where they are. I think it's a real important concept for us as Christians is not to expect people to be at a certain level. You just meet them wherever they are, just like the Lord met you wherever you are. And, um, and that kind of leads in just a couple of introductory things, not getting into the text yet. When it comes to cultural norms in, in our society, in our culture, culture is a very interesting thing because it's, it's our beliefs, it's our, our values, the characteristics of a group of people. So we have a culture that we live in, um, your city, our, our state, our country. Uh, we have a culture a, as a church. And yet when it comes to biblical culture, we realize that sometimes there are things that match up with God's culture, the culture of the kingdom of God, and some things that don't. So how do we deal with things when it comes to cultural norms? I bring this up in a timely way because I believe that as we go through the word of God, God speaks to us, but then there's times to also, in discipleship, talk about things that you're going to face. Uh, we're, we're going to be voting here. Um, elections are, are coming right now. Some of you already have absentee ballots. Some of you are already registered. You're thinking, like, how do I vote? I just want to encourage you to... Yes, vote your conscience, but the more that our conscience are shaped by God's conscience, by the word of God and who God is, the more that we vote according to that. Um, you realize that uh, Paul didn't really vote because they didn't live in a democratic society like we do. And, and Christians can fall in camps of being anti-political. I'm not political at all. And then sometimes um, over-political where they think that that's what's going to usher in the kingdom of God. If we get the right uh, of people in office and, and the vote, the right things. 
But really, Jesus, we live in a theocracy, even though we live in our culture, Jesus is our king. And in the kingdom of God, there are many different principles that sometimes collide with this world's principles. So when it comes to cultural norms, I want to encourage you to think biblically. Um, David Barton, he uh, regularly testifies at the Supreme Court. And what he has learned to do, he said, I, I think biblically, but I speak secularly. So when you talk to someone that doesn't know the Lord, don't, don't speak Christianese. They're not going to understand it. But you know, in our hearts and when we understand the Bible, we could apply those principles. And the same thing comes because on Friday we have Halloween. And in a church, uh, you're, you're going to have every spectrum in here. And, and it's going to be funny because there's some people that are, this is the day that we fast and pray. And, and that's great. You know, you're praying for our, our world and our, our country, our city, and those kids that are out there because there's a lot of evil on that day. You have some that just jump into Halloween like it's what all holds, you know, whatever you want to do, you know, and, and uh, if you want to dress up, do whatever you want. And it doesn't matter what costume because it doesn't really mean anything. It's just this, this fake thing. And, and yet I look at it and I realize biblically there are times that we need to reject certain things from culture. Uh, let, me, let me read this aspect of Halloween. Dr. Lloyd uh, Setter, from the, he's the medical director of the New York State Office of Mental Health. This is, so he's the New York State uh, Director of Mental Health. He said this, dealing with people with mental health issues. He said, evil has a perverse beauty to it. It always has. Now, he must be a believer because he writes this, Satan was an angel before his fall. Whether you see evil in a religious context, demonic in nature, or in a secular manner as wrongful behavior driven by wanted self-absorption, it requires its opposite, namely good, to give it shape and meaning. What's more, the greater the tension between good and evil, the more we can appreciate its presence and its force. So what he's saying is that if we recognize evil, we must also recognize that there has to be good so that we could define what evil is. And evil has a, a, this, quote, a perverse beauty to it. So maybe as a Christian, you reject it. Maybe you receive it and you think, well, it's just a all hollows, all hollows Eve and it's the day before it, you know, um, All Saints Day. Or maybe you redeem it and you say, you know what we do is we go out and we, we want to be light and we want to love people. We want to give out the best candy and we, we want to turn on our porch and let our neighbors know that we love them. I think it's very important when you look at it scripturally not to judge one another, but make sure that whatever it is that we do, we do it as unto the Lord. Therefore, doing something as unto the Lord means I am not going to dress up with a pentagram, you know, on my chest and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to have a, a knife in my hand with this pentagram and, and say, you know, I'm this mass murderer. I don't, I don't see anything in there where I could redeem that. If you can, you're stretching it. You know, I, I, I can't see it. But when it comes to gathering with other people or some people hey, say, hey, I don't want to be a part of that. And that's great. I think as we do these things, we need to do it as unto the Lord and realize that every day is the Lord's day. Realize this, God is not less powerful on a certain holiday. I know Christians that don't celebrate Christmas because they say it has pagan roots. Uh, I know Christians that don't celebrate Easter because Easter in and of itself has pagan roots, but we celebrate the resurrection of Christ or the birth of Christ. So whatever we do, we do it as unto the Lord. So whether we vote or we celebrate uh, a holiday, or we root for the Dodgers or Giants, we do it as unto the Lord. So uh, I wanted to share that with you. And now um, getting into our message this morning, 
a unified team. Uh, what, what makes a, a unified team? We're going to look at Acts chapter 18, and you're going to find that Paul the Apostle is like the main character that we know in Scripture, the main uh, leader that God uses as the Apostle in the book of Acts. After Peter kind of like fades off of the scene for a little while, now it kind of focuses on Paul. But Paul is not alone. He needs other people, and other people need Paul, and we need each other. And the first thing in a unified team, as we're going to read, is, is unified in belief. Uh, we had a, um, a workshop, which we'll probably do again this year, where it just, it's about as a church, you know, how, what is our culture? What is God calling us to do as a church? And it was called um, Ecclesia, which is the called out ones. And the thing that we want to do is we want to be unified in belief. So our unifying factor in belief comes to the word of God and the gospel. And, and I could also realize that I could, I could have fellowship and work with other Christians that don't believe exactly the same as me. They could be different in, in how they see prophecy or the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But I'll tell you the core essentials of what we have together is that we know that Jesus died for our sins, that Jesus rose again, that um, it's about the cross, and that cross represents uh, when Jesus took our sin upon himself to bring us into relationship with the Father. But we need to be unified in belief. It's, it's very important. And in the same way, any team that is together, ministry team or otherwise, if they're not unified in belief, um, what you're going to have is a bunch of individuals. And those individuals are going to be going in different directions. A second thing is unified in values. Um, if you receive our email, um, I just sent something out uh, on Friday about what is the capstone of Regeneration Church. When it comes to values, um, it's grace. You know, in, in the Old Testament, uh, the vision of the Lord to um, um, Zechariah talked about Zerubbabel laying the capstone. And the capstone would be with shouts of grace, grace to it. You could build something, but without that capstone, something's missing. And if grace is missing, it's very, very evident. Now, grace means it's undeserved, it's unmerited favor from God. Now, we realize that as Christians, we're saved by grace. Now, we don't earn it. It's not like, hey, we're really super good people and, and we're really nice and we do these good things and God saved us because of that. It's all because of his grace. That's how he regenerated us. But we can't just be saved by that grace. We have to live by it, which means if we receive God's grace, we also are to give that grace to others. And I just wanted to make sure that as a church, it's something that we're not there yet. We haven't arrived, but we're moving towards that. We want to move towards that. We want to move away from self-righteousness and legalism to grace and realize we're not compromised truth, but we love people and we reach out to people where they are. And, and uh, we think the best of people. We, we give the benefit of the doubt. Uh, we don't put people in boxes and try to, try to say, well, you know what, until you get out of this box, then I'll give you grace. No, that's, that's really key. And the last thing is unified in friendship. And you're gonna see in Acts chapter 18, Paul does ministry with friends. And I think some of the greatest friendships in all of my life, and if you've been a Christian and you've served the Lord, some of your greatest friendships in all of your life are people that you serve the Lord with at times. People that you just uh, did things together for the sake of, of serving others. 
So if you'd read with me, we're going to look at Acts chapter 18, and we're going, going to get into it. It says in Acts chapter 18, verse 1, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Achilla, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. Now, Paul, going through this second missionary journey, um, he leaves uh, Timothy um, and and Silas uh, behind. And uh, he continues on and he gets to Athens. And then from Athens, he goes to Corinth. Now, when Paul gets to Corinth, um, he looks around him. He, he sees this city. Something to know about Corinth, to be a Corinthian um, meant that you were a part of a culture. The Corinthian culture was notorious for really a lot of sensuality. We have cities in our country today that are notorious for sensuality, right? All right, well, what are some of them? Just throw it out there. Las Vegas. All right, what does the commercial say? Whatever happens in Vegas, what? Stays in Vegas, all right? That is a city, also nicknamed, what's the nickname? Sin City. Can you imagine? That's my nickname. You're my Sin City. Well, Corinth was that type of city. That was their nickname, um, in a sense. If you were uh, Corinthianized, you know what that meant? That, meant, that means that you became corrupt, that, that means that in some way, shape, or form, you started taking on the characteristic of Corinth. And yet, this is the place that Paul goes, into Corinth. Now, as he goes into Corinth, um, he looks around. There are idols. Uh, there is a, a temple there with a, a sexual, sensual type of worship. A thousand temple prostitutes to the goddess Athena. It, it's this place where anything that you want to do, it, it's okay, as long as it's under the, under the umbrella of, quote-unquote, worship of a certain god. And so there were gods of sensuality. And, and Athens was more like a god of pride, of intellectual um, prowess. But when you get to Corinth, it was more sensuality. And so when Paul is here, this is the birth of this strong friendship, um, He's in this city, and notice that there's a Jew named Achilla, and, and Claudius commanded that the Jews had to depart from Rome. Uh, so it was kind of like, uh, imagine in Europe, uh, right before World War II, and uh, the Jews had to leave. And the ones that were, stayed there, um, they were persecuted. And uh, they were, the, you know, the Nazis came in. And this is what's happening against the Jews in Rome. They, they had to leave Rome. There was this uh, persecution that rose up against them. And so as this happens, and, and they were also um, going back to places where they were more readily accepted, they end up in Corinth, and Paul comes to know them. Now, we don't know exactly if they were believers ahead of this. Maybe they were already believers. A lot of commentators believe that they were. Or if Paul led them to Christ... But something to note is that he was of the same trade. They made tents. Now, this was very important because remember that for the the Jews, you have this uh, Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. So certain times tents would be made and they would go outside and, and they would celebrate these feasts in this way. 
So it's not like, you know, they work for REI and they're making like these super nice tents and solo camping tents. This is a different kind of tent. And then they also had bigger tents that they would probably use uh, to sell goods and, and set, up, set up shops. But notice that in this workplace, Paul and uh, Achilla and his wife, Pris- and, uh, Achilla's wife Priscilla, they become partners. They start to work together. And I want to encourage you that whatever you do for a living or where you go to school or if you play on a team or you're a part of a recreational league or you're a part of a book club, those people around you, whether they know the Lord or not, God has placed you in their lives somehow to enhance their lives, to make a difference and to show them the love of Christ. I I believe this with all my heart that as Christians, we should be the people that wherever we are, we make that place better. Now, I'm not saying that in a self-righteous way, like we are better. Sometimes we could be dumb and, and you know make stupid mistakes and make things worse. We're not supposed to do that. I have a friend who's in pararescue. And uh, basically, pararescue gets embedded with Navy SEALs or they get embedded with you know Army Rangers. And basically, wherever he is, everyone's supposed to be safer because this guy not only has military training, but medical training. You know, I told him that if I were to go camping, you are the guy I would want to have with me more than anyone else. If I were to get lost, you know, in a, get shipwrecked, you're the guy that I would want with me. But I actually think that Christians should be like that so that in the workplace or in your school or on your team, because you're around people, that their lives somehow are touched by God through you and through me. You know, I think about that with the team that I help coach. Uh, we have a Sunday game today after church, and it's our only Sunday game so far this, this season. I was talking to the other coaches, and uh, it, it was funny because just on Friday, they were laughing. We were all standing in this group, and they all looked at me, and they said, uh, one of the guys goes, hey, do you know what Matt does? Do you guys know that Matt works with the church? You, you know, and they, they look at me, and they just start laughing. They go, you, you must pray for us all the time, huh? And I just start laughing. I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I do. It's not that I'm better than them and they don't see me as like a separating myself from them. But I really hope and pray that they know that I love them. I do. I pray for these guys. I pray for the guys that I coach. And, and if you're in a secular job, then the people that you work with and your supervisor or your subordinates or your workmates, they should know that you care about them. Yeah, do your job. Make sure that you are the best you can do at what you do. But somehow or another, if you're a student, your teachers should know that you care about them. Don't see yourself as like, well, I'm just a student and they're teachers. I remember when, when uh, I was in high school, I came into my classroom. I had just become a Christian and I saw my teacher there with a bunch of other students. It was kind of a weird thing. She was holding um, this nickel that was tied to a string and she was staring at it. I'm looking at it like, what are you guys doing? And she said, I'm trying to move this with my mind. I said, really? I said, that's pretty interesting. And then one of the other students goes, oh yeah, she's a witch. And they didn't mean it like in a derogatory way. They were serious. I had a teacher in high school. She was my English teacher that she was a witch. And uh, so then they started talking about spells. And one of the kids said something like, she could cast a spell on you. And I just immediately said, it doesn't matter. If she did cast a spell, nothing would happen to me. And then they looked at me like, why wouldn't anything happen to you? I said, because I have Jesus in me. And so because I have Jesus in me, and, and she looked at me, she goes, you know what, you're right. Nothing would happen to you. And, uh, and it was just this thing 
that uh, I started this conversation with my teacher and we talked after school and, and we would talk about spiritual things and she had this eclectic spiritual version of God. She believed in God. She believed that God was real, but she had kind of like a designer God that she took bits and pieces from different parts of different religions. And I was trying to share with her the gospel and who Jesus is. Uh, She got sick. She stopped working at the school. Uh, She uh, came down with cancer. And I remember um, later on when I had already graduated from the high school, I wrote her a letter uh, just witnessing to her, telling her about Jesus. Because I didn't see her only as my English teacher. I saw her as a human being that needed to know the same Savior that I know. And I think that Paul does this. And so as he works with Priscilla and Aquila, uh, notice this. He was of the same trade in verse 3, and then he stayed with them. Now, if you have a relationship with people that you work with, sometimes aren't you glad that you leave your job and you go home? right? Because like you, you, you could be at work and be just frustrated, but you leave work and then you go home and you have your own life at home. But Paul worked with them, so they're business partners, but then what do they do? They allow him, they say, hey, why don't you come and stay with us? Now Paul also lives with them. So they live together and they work together and they are of the same trade. We'll get into this at the end of the chapter. Let me tell you something else that amazes me. This amazes me that in the marriage uh, between Priscilla and Aquila, they work together, they're married, they let a workmate stay in their house. And how do they do that without like fighting and without like just uh, tearing each other apart? And, and you're going to see that a big part of that is they, they've died to self. They've understood what this means. So in verse four, Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. That was his method. He would go into the synagogue and, and reason with them, and he persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So the people that were there, because Paul was a rabbi, he began to speak with the people, and people were, were listening to him. Something else that's interesting, if you read First and Second Corinthians, you realize that in other places where Paul was, there were times when the church supported him. But in Corinth, man, Corinth was a rough place. You're going to see how rough this is for Paul in, in a little while. It was just this place where when Paul writes first and second Corinthians, he says, when I was with you, I was in much fear and trembling. You know, my, my words were not persuasive words of human wisdom. And, and Paul had to continually defend himself to the Corinthian church. So Paul is in here, he's working. He's trying to persuade them that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. Now, God blesses that, and the team grows. In verse 5, it says, Now, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Silas and Timothy, remember, Paul left them behind. He went ahead of them. He's in Corinth. Now, Paul, I mean, now Silas and Timothy catch up to him. And I believe that when the Holy Spirit inspires the word of God and we look at verse five that somehow or another that there is a link between the first part that says when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia and then the second part Paul was compelled by the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ I believe that Paul would have done this alone I believe that Paul if he was all by himself he would have still done what God called him to do but is there not something that strengthens us when we feel like there's someone that is with us, 
doesn't it strengthen you when you feel like you're not alone? If you've ever been on a, a missions team, you realize that on that missions team, a great strength of that missions team is that you're not alone. And isn't it an exciting thing if you're a follower of Christ to find out that at your workplace or at your school, there's someone else that's a Christian. And you realize, wow, we're, we're both Christians. And then you start talking and you have this common bond that you have in Christ. I think that when Paul uh, was compelled by the Spirit, it was this great timing because Silas and Timothy had also come from Macedonia. And so they grow as a team. And I, I think about the friendship. Now Paul is there and he's with Priscilla and Aquila and he introduces them and here's Silas and Timothy. And then in verse six, but when they opposed him and blasphemed, so here he is, Paul, you know, preaching to them, sharing in, in the synagogue. So they opposed Paul now and they blaspheme. It says that he shook his garments and said, now this is pretty intense. He says, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. If you remember historically in the Bible, Paul was an apostle specifically to go to which group of people? The Gentiles. But he loves his own people so much that he continues to reach out to them. But they reject him. Here in Corinth, they just they reject him and they, they start to blaspheme and uh, they, they oppose him and they're coming up against him. When Paul says this, this is not just a flippant emotional response. I want you to know that in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 3, in Ezekiel chapter 18, in Ezekiel chapter 33, God called the prophet um, Ezekiel. He said, hey, I have appointed you as a watchman over Israel. So when I, blow the, when I tell you that judgment is coming and you don't warn them, I'm going to require their blood at your hands. But if you warn them and tell them and they don't listen, they will be guilty, but you've delivered yourself. If you tell them and they listen, then it's even better because like you've saved them from the judgment that they're going to go through. So when Paul says this, God had appointed Paul as an apostle, a, a specific ministry position and calling. I don't believe that we as Christians are under a judgment like this, that if I don't witness to someone, then their blood is gonna be on my head. But I do believe this, in some ways that is true, because if I know the truth and I don't share the truth, then I am responsible. Not that, not that I'm going to hell or anything like that, but you know what? There is a responsibility that comes with the knowledge that we have as believers not to keep this to ourselves. And most of the time, the reasons why we don't share with other people is not a lack of belief on our part. It's a fear that they'll reject us or that they might make fun of us or they might not be friends or that we might get mocked. And so sometimes that causes us to be silent. And I, just think about this for a second. When it comes to, um, if you're married... I just imagine that, imagine that uh, your wife works at this place and she has been working there for uh, three years. She's working at this company for three years. And then there's some kind of work picnic or something like that. And, and uh, you go with her because the whole company's invited. You go to this work picnic. And imagine going around and every person you meet, they look and they go, wow, I didn't realize she was married. 
I didn't know she was married. You're married? Really? You never said that. You never, you never mentioned your husband. And you, you, for three years, she's been working there. For three, and now it's this company picnic, and they're talking about all kinds of things. She's talking about like shows or music or you know things that they have in common, and and they're like, I never knew that you were married because you never mentioned it. Now, as her husband, you would feel a little bit offended, right? And you would feel maybe a little bit like, wow, there, why is not you know why why how why don't any of the people that she works with know that for three years she's been married to me? she embarrassed of me? Is she trying to hide it? And yet how many people that we work with, we go to school with, sometimes neighbors with for decades? You're a Christian? I would have never known. I had no idea. I had no idea that you worship this God that loves everyone and, and is reaching out to everyone and has told you to tell, tell everyone about him. And I didn't know that. See, I, I don't think that it means that we're always supposed to be uh, witnessing and, and telling about Jesus when we should be working. But eventually, he's got to come up. Eventually, there is something where you say, hey, you know what? I, I, I read this the other day. I was reading the Bible, and I was thinking about this. Or, or I listened to this song. Or, or at church, you know, my pastor was talking about this. Or I've been praying for you. Or, hey, how's that going with that, that situation? You know, um, can I pray for you? Would you mind if I prayed for you? Or just letting them know, giving them a card that I'm praying for them or a Bible verse, something, something. Uh, giving them, like, if they have a baby, you know, get them something and then say, hey, you know, I'm praying for you, you know, praise God. Anything, something that you show love to them, you're opening up your mouth, you could show actions and words and, and all of that. And And I look at that and I realize, you know, when it comes to Paul, I think that, the spirit was compelling him to share with them. And because they wouldn't listen, he says, now I'm gonna go to the Gentiles. You know what? Wherever Paul was, people heard about Jesus, right? Wherever Paul was. And their responses were different. Some believed, some mocked him, some beat him up, some uh, threw rocks at him. But there was a reaction because wherever Paul was, people were going to hear I just think it's important for us to show the love of Christ wherever we are. So he departed, it says in verse seven, from there he entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God and whose house was next door to the synagogue. So now Paul is staying there. He's uh, with Justice and uh, right next to this house where they, uh, his house is right next to the synagogue. And then notice that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Now when Crispus, who's the ruler of the synagogue becomes a Christian, now more people start to listen. And now it's like the doors are open and people are saying, well, if even the ruler of the synagogue believes in Christ, then maybe there's something to it. So many of the Corinthians hear and believe and were baptized. By the way, if you've never been baptized. It's an important thing. It's not a thing to save you, but it's a thing that says, I have been saved, and it's a public declaration to the world of what God has done in your life. Now, the next thing is that God encourages Paul. Read with me in verse 9. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. 
just observation, why do you think, you know, interpretation, why do you think that God spoke to Paul, Jesus speaking to Paul in the night by a vision? Why do you think he gave Paul this vision and said, do not be afraid? Just, just what do you think? <laughs> because he's, he's probably afraid, right? You know, I, my kids are older when they were younger. Um, you know, petting zoos were, were scary, but petting zoos are not scary to them anymore, right? So I don't, I don't go to my kids and say, okay, there's a little lamb right there. Just don't, don't be afraid. You know, hug me. Just hold on. You know, it's, it's okay. They're, they're, they're fine. They walk up, they hand out food. And, but if there's a dog that is growling at them, and there's an owner that's holding this dog back, and the dog's, you know, and just like trying to get to them. You know, I'm holding them. I'm saying, it's okay. Don't be afraid. Because I'm trying to comfort them because there's something to be afraid of. I believe that the Lord encourages Paul because there's something that Paul's afraid of. In, in some of the cities that Paul is, remember in Lystra, they threw rocks at him until they thought he was dead. Um, in uh, different cities, they would beat Paul. Um, in Philippi, he was put in prison and he was beaten with rods. I think Paul was just like kind of looking at it and going, man, this is getting real controversial. People are starting to hear about me and he's starting to be afraid. And when you read First and Second Corinthians, you also see that Paul um, always had to like defend himself to the Corinthians. And so, God spoke to him. Jesus appeared to him in this vision and says, don't be afraid. And notice the next thing that he says, but speak and do not keep silent, which means there might've been a temptation on Paul's part to keep silent. I think that sometimes the fear, like I said before, keeps us back from speaking and sharing with someone or praying with someone. The, when I was teaching at a public high school, um, one of the teachers there, he was a, an older teacher. I started teaching a class I've shared with you before called Bible as Literature. There was a precedent because this teacher that had been there longer than me had already taught a class called the Bible as Literature there years before. And uh, we were just, you know, I found out, again, that commonality. I found out that this guy was also a Christian. So we started to talk and he kind of mentored me a little bit. And we talked about uh, ministry in the school. And he talked about how one day one of his students came up to him after school and he, he shared with them as a teacher, he said, I, he was suicidal. This student wanted to commit suicide. So my friend, his teacher said, well, why do you want to do that? And the guy started to share and the guy had been in drugs and just like his life was pretty hopeless. And so my friend, you know, just said, when that happened, my heart was beating because I felt like the, the Holy Spirit was telling me, witness to him and tell him about me. So he's realizing this is a dangerous thing as a teacher at a public high school. So he shares with him about Jesus. He says, well, you know, I, I want to let you know I'm a Christian. And, and Jesus, you know, he could help you with that fear because he'll give you this peace that surpasses, you know, all understanding. He started to witness to him. So this kid listens to him, high school kid. And, and then the Holy Spirit prompts my friend Bert Rapp to, to say, would you want to pray with me to receive Christ? So he asked the student, would you want to pray with me? The student says, yes. So he prays with them. The student becomes a Christian. That student's dad was the principal of the high school. So, you know, Bert Rapp is always wondering, like, what's going to happen? Nothing happens. There's, he doesn't hear about it. But that kid gets his life together, starts walking with the Lord, starts going not only to church, but gets off of drugs, starts hanging around with some other people, and, and just he starts doing better in school. He's hopeful. He's not suicidal. When the principal retired from that school at his retirement party, 
when he was giving his speech and thanking people, when he mentioned, now that principal was not a Christian. He got choked up when he mentioned Burt Rapp. And he said, he started crying. He said, and thank you, Burt Rapp. He says, because as far as I'm concerned, Burt Rapp can do no wrong because Burt Rapp saved my son. And you know, there was something about Burt Rapp sharing his story with me that encouraged me as a teacher in a public high school to invite a bunch of students to Promise Keepers. And I took probably six of my athletes to Promise Keepers and uh, three of them went down to receive Christ and to accept the Lord. And now those guys are, you know, married and they have kids and they found me on Facebook and they thanked me and said, coach, you know, thank you because I started walking with the Lord because you invited me to this Promise Keepers. Now, I would have never invited them to this Promise Keepers event, maybe, if I wouldn't have talked to Burt Rapp. And if Burt Rapp would have never shared with that son, then maybe Burt Rapp wouldn't have had this story to share with me. And we read this in the Bible as pages, you know, on, in a book, but realize that Paul was a real man who did real things and was afraid, just like you and I get afraid. And God will use you even if you're afraid. It doesn't mean that courage is not the absence of fear. It means that we still respond even though we're fearful. And there's going to be times when you're called to speak up. There's going to be times when you're called to do something for the Lord that is scary. Uh, this, just before I came out here, I got, just got an email from my daughter, Rebecca, and she's had to change her Facebook profile and, and she's trying to erase her social media footprint because a security in the Philippines for her right now is a little bit more tight than she had expected because, um, you know, she's there, you know, with IGM and she's fighting human trafficking and, and in doing so, she actually goes by a different name in the Philippines. So when she meets people, she has to use a different name because she doesn't want people to know who she is. Now, as a dad, that's scary a little bit. But you know what? When I read that, that, in, that encourages me. Because whenever we hear someone that is risking, even though they're afraid, doesn't that cause you to be a little bit more bold? When, when someone else, it's kind of like, you know, uh, Mike Orpeza is out there and we're playing football and Mike Orpeza is the biggest guy on the team, the strongest guy on the team and coach is mad at everyone and says, who wants to go up against Mike? And no one wants to go up against Mike and one kid says, I'll do it. Doesn't that give you a little bit of courage? Hey, if he could do it, I could do it. You know what, Paul? God tells him, don't be afraid. Do not keep silent, speak. Then he tells him in verse 10 something that he wants you to know today too. I am with you. Do you know the reason why you don't have to be afraid? It's because Jesus says, for I am with you. Some of your fears, our fears are health related. Some of our fears this morning, um, you suffer with anxiety about your future. You suffer with the fear of people and what people are gonna think about you. You, you suffer with fear of, of finances and whether or not you're going to be able to afford things or or in your retirement, you don't have a 401k. You don't know how, how's God, how's, how am I going to take care of my family? See, we have all of these fears. We have fears of past mistakes catching up with us. We have fears if, if I really surrender to God, what will he make me do? If I really surrender, what is he going to call me to? And just know that the thing that, cause, that calms our fears is this. Jesus says, I'm with you. That's what calms our fears. The same way that, man, my daughters could be so afraid at night because of a story they heard at school and then, you know, just freaking out and I could turn on the light, say, look, nothing's there. I could pray with them. 
but I walk away and what happens? They're afraid again. What causes that fear to go away? Well, sometimes for me as a dad, it's just lying down right next to them in bed, snuggling with them, holding them, and then telling them a story, praying with them. It's my physical presence. And Jesus being present with Paul gives him this vision and wants to remind him, I'm with you. And Jesus this morning wants to remind you, he's with you. Whatever you're fearful of, whatever you're facing. But not only is he with you, Paul, Paul also received this promise. He said, Paul, no one's gonna attack you to hurt you. And Paul needed to hear that because he had been attacked many times. He had been hurt many times. Now, maybe not physically. It could be physically, but maybe emotionally and spiritually, you have been hurt from a place that you thought hurt should never come. It's called a church. Maybe you thought the people that won't hurt me are God's people. There are other Christians. I won't get hurt there. That's a safe place. And maybe in that safe place, you've been hurt. And the Lord just wants to encourage you. Don't allow past hurts and past attacks to keep you from doing what God has called you to do and what he has created you to do. You know why? Because he's with you. And then it says, I have many people in this city. You are not alone. I know we feel like that sometimes. I know Elijah, the prophet, felt like that. He said, I'm alone. I'm left. I'm the last prophet in the world, last man standing. And God had to tell him, no, there's still 7,000 prophets that have not bowed their knee to Baal. You're not alone, Elijah. And you could be in a city like Corinth or whatever city you live in, you could live in Santa Cruz or Scotts Valley or Ben Loman or Watsonville or Salinas or San Jose. Or you could live in whatever city. You could work at whatever job you're in. You could be at whatever school you're in. You feel like, oh, I'm all alone. I can't do it. I'd venture to say there, there probably are some other Christians that are there. You might not know it because maybe they're afraid also. And if you are the only one, don't leave all right? You're the only one. Don't leave. You're the light. You're the one that God is going to use to share with with those people that there is a God that loves them. So in verse 11, the result, he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Most valuable thing he could do is just teach them the word of God. And he just remained there and fruit came from this. And, And by the way, that is very fruitful. When we, the reason why we go through the Bible is because we need to be able to give you something that is stronger, something that is more meaningful, something that is more solid and steadfast than just something that a human being can give. I don't know how long you're going to be here. You can move on, you could go to another place, but if you have the word of God, then realize you always have something to hold on to wherever you are. And then it says in verse 12, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul. They brought him to the judgment seat. So now, year and six months, it's almost like that honeymoon period was over. And they said, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, Paul in verse 14 was about to open his mouth. He was about to defend himself. Um, but then Galileo, uh, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. 
bummer to be Sosthenes, right? It's kind of like Paul's on trial, and uh, Gallio says, you know, he's the the government official there. He's like, hey, if this were a legal matter, you know, I would deal with it, but it's just a religious matter, so you know, leave him alone. And they get so angry that they go out and they bring Sosthenes and they beat him, which means that Crispus is no longer the ruler of the synagogue. After becoming a, a follower of Christ, now there's this new guy. What a bummer just to take over the job and then like, what am I here for? And then just get beat up like that. But um, it says, now going to verse 18, it says, so Paul still remained a good while. He took leave of the brethren and he sailed for Syria. And notice, and Priscilla and Achilla were with him and he had his hair cut off at Centria for he had taken a vow. So Paul remained there for a while, but then when it was time to leave, he went towards Syria and Priscilla and Achilla, now they, they are traveling companions, not just workers, but they have the same mission. They are on mission together. And Paul took a vow. We don't know what vow this is, but it is probably a Nazarite vow um, of some type. But um, he had his hair cut off at Centria. So up to that point, maybe he had this vow to let his hair grow out. But then when he gets to Centria, like the vow was over. And so he was able to, to cut his hair. Um, it was probably a vow that he had between him and the Lord, just like many of the vows that um, God's people did. And I think it also encouraged the Jews that Paul, even though he was a Christian and a follower of Christ, he was still Jewish by culture and by nationality. And he still did many of these things that, that they did. Now verse 19, he came to Ephesus and then Paul left them there. Who's the them? Priscilla and Aquila. But he himself entered a synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent. He's like, I got to go. In verse 21, he took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return to you again, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. So he has this desire to get to Jerusalem by the feast. And he says, but if the Lord's willing, I'll come back. And I think that's important to always have that if the Lord's willing. Like we could make plans, but sometimes my plans might not be God's plans. What plans are you making right now? And they might be God's plans, but submit them to the plan checker. Submit them to the Lord who could say, we're gonna scrap this. Or to the Lord who could say, yes, keep going. Or to the Lord that says, hey, I have a different way that I want you to go. In verse 22, when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. So back at his home church. Uh, this is three years later. He had been gone for three years. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. So next week, we'll get into this is the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. And I want to end with this last portion, these last four verses. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. Verse 25, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke, and he taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Now when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. 
for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Now, the last elements of this chapter, the last teammate that is added is a guy named Apollos. Apollos was eloquent. He was learned. You remember when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he says, not many mighty, not many noble um, were called, not many. You know, most of them are fishermen or, you know, had, had like kind of meager backgrounds. But Apollos was eloquent and mighty in scriptures and fervent in spirit. And he, he spoke accurately. But know this, he didn't know the full gospel and he didn't know the power of the Holy Spirit. That part was still going to be revealed to him. Who revealed it to him? Who taught him? Priscilla and Aquila. This husband and wife team, um, when Paul writes about Apollos in the book of 1 Corinthians, he calls him an apostle. What were Priscilla and Aquila? They were tent makers. And those tent makers knew the word of God well enough to be able to describe to Apollos, hey, you know what? You're doing a good job. They pulled him aside and they spoke to him privately. You know what they could have done? They could have said, I'm leaving. I'm le- listen to him. He's teaching something not accurately or he doesn't quite understand. I'm out of here. But you know what they showed him? They showed him love. That means that they met with him face to face and they had a discussion. As Christians who value grace and who value love and relationship, shouldn't we be different? If you have a disagreement with someone or you think that someone is wrong, Should you just write them off and say, well, that person's wrong. Never going to talk to them again. No, that person's wrong. I'm not going to have any relationship with them. No, you know what they did? They talked to him. And this speaks to the humility of an Apollos who eloquent and mighty in scripture listens to them and receives from them. I just want to encourage you, we're, we're in this together. This is not... You know, me as the pastor teaching everything because I know everything and everything in my brain needs to get into your brains who don't know everything. No, this is, I'm learning and as I learn, I'm gonna teach and I'm gonna, we're gonna grow. And you know what? There's gonna be a lot of things that I learned from you and there's gonna be things that you guys learn from one another. And as a body of Christ, that's what God has called us to. It's why fellowship is so important. That's why sitting around having a Bible study discussing things and it's okay at times if there's a disagreement let's look to the scriptures let's talk about it let's pray through it and if there's a disagreement don't just write us off don't write someone else off ask a question i'll tell you as a pastor it's brutal sometimes it's brutal to hear after the fact why someone left a church and never had a discussion with me I remember one time talking when I was in Gilroy about Islam and, and how Islam is wrong, but yet there are some people that are Muslims that are actually trying to do things for humanity. And so it's important, if, we, if they want to do the same thing, like we're helping out at the city and they're helping out at the city, let's help out the city together. And that gives an opportunity for us to share with them. They took that to mean I'm into this Chrislam thing. And like, I think there's no difference between Islam and Christianity. So they just stopped coming to church and they were in leadership and they were helping out and doing all kinds of things. And like, where are they? And finally, I don't know. And I I called and no return call. Then finally, I talked to someone else who talked to someone else that said, oh yeah, he left because they said that you are now saying that Christianity and Islam are compatible. 
And I'm going, really? Really? They never talked to me? Like, I'm not human? Like, I'm just this robot that gets up there and spews things out, and there's no relationship or emotion? No, you know what? Paul, Apollos, Priscilla, Achilla, these are real people. Real people with real lives, with real emotions. I just want to encourage you that as we continue to grow in this culture of grace, let this be the place where people come and none of us are perfect, but we're growing and we just treat each other with grace. And we continue to grow in our understanding of the truth so that someone that is not a believer that comes in doesn't feel like I have to get up to speed before I come in. They feel like, no, I could come in and be accepted and welcomed. And if there's some teaching that needs to happen, there's some teaching that needs to happen and that's okay. And that, that's something that is attractive to people. That is something where people say, hey, you know, I wanna come. And maybe, they're, maybe, you're come, maybe you've been here for a while. You've never really received Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you're hearing this and you're going, man, I wanna learn, I wanna grow. I just encourage you to take the step of faith and say, Jesus, come into my life. And, and I thank you for your love, your grace and your mercy. Just fill me with your presence. I'm still learning. And know this, he doesn't expect you to get your life all cleaned up before you come. You don't, take your, you don't wash your car before you take it to a car wash, right? <laughs> some of you do, and that's, you have a problem. But some, you know, um, generally, you don't wash your car before you take it to a car wash. Hey, let's just come to the Lord this morning and receive the grace that he has for us. The bottom line is, it's all about Jesus and his mission. He unifies us in belief and in our values and in our friendship. Father, this morning, we want to thank you. Lord, we look at Acts chapter 18, and we realize that Paul and Silas and Timothy, Priscilla and Achilla and Apollos and Crispus, Lord, this team that you brought together, you brought Jews and you brought Gentiles. You brought a rabbi, um, a ruler of a synagogue, tent makers. You brought people from different walks of life. Lord, you brought people from different backgrounds and yet together there was something beautiful that you did that was compelling. Jesus, I think about the mission that you've given us to go and make disciples. You, you do a better job than us, Lord, but yet you wanna use us. And you remind us that when you send us out to do the things that you've called us to do, that you're with us. When you gr- gave us the great co-mission, Lord, that we have the, the privilege and opportunity to join you in the mission that you are doing and you, you're with us in the midst of it. So I wanna thank you. And Father, I also wanna pray that if um, there are any fears that we have, Lord, fears at times that keep us silent, sometimes fears of being used by you, maybe Lord, like Paul, we just need a fresh vision of Jesus this morning. We need that fresh vision from you that you would speak to our hearts to say, I'm with you. You would speak to our hearts to say, don't be afraid. You would speak to our hearts to say, don't be silent. You would speak to our hearts to say, you are not alone. There are many more in this city. And Lord, ultimately, we wanna thank you that even when we face the greatest fears of life, like death, like the death of a loved one, like health, whatever those things are, God, that we could trust in you. Lord, as I looked at this uh, set of worship songs that we were going to sing this morning, um, 
I realized that uh, this next song that we're about ready to sing was the song that uh, we sang at my dad's funeral earlier this year. And Father, I'm so grateful that there's not fear in death. I thank you for those times when you stop us in our tracks and you remind us that there's more to this life than just the things that we see, just the things that, that stress us out on a daily basis. God, would you call us to worship you? Would you call us in that faith and expectation to know that you love us and that you're with us? And I would pray if anyone has never received you, that they would know that receiving you is to receive life and life more abundantly, a freedom from the past and our guilt and our shame, a hope for what you have for us, not only in heaven, but in this life, a future and a hope because you have good plans for your people, Lord. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.